Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the critical delay in getting rescue teams to the sites of devastation in southern Turkey, where thousands remain trapped under rubble from the 7.8 earthquake at 4.17am local time on Monday. Joining us to discuss the belated effort underway to get rescue teams into the area and warnings from seismic and building experts that were ignored by the Erdogan government is Humaira Pamuk, a foreign policy reporter for Reuters who covers the US State Department and has had postings in London, Cairo, Dubai and Turkey. Her mother's cousin is stuck under the rubble in Hatay province where there is no help underway as of now and we assess the extent to which Turkish citizens are getting information about the government's failings and questions about what happened to the earthquake tax money in spite of the control that Erdogan has over the mainstream press. Then we'll look into why the earthquake in Turkey was so deadly due to the three tectonic plates, the Arabian, Anatolian and African plates, that converge in the area where the earthquake broke along a 100-kilometre fault line. Joining us is an expert on intraplate earthquakes, Susan Hoff, a seismologist with the United States Geological Survey in Pasadena, California. She has written extensively about the science of earthquakes and the way that earthquakes have affected human societies. Her books include Earthshaking Science, What We Know and Don't Know About Earthquakes, Finding Fault in California, An Earthquake Tourist Guide, After the Earthquakes, Elastic Rebound on an Urban Planet, Predicting the Unpredictable, The Tumultuous Science of Earthquake Prediction, and most recently, The Great Quake Debate, The Crusader, The Skeptic, and The Rise of Modern Seismology. Then finally, just ahead of tonight's State of the Union address by President Biden, we will speak with Paul Glastris, the editor-in-chief of the Washington Monthly, who spent 10 years as a correspondent and editor at U.S. News & World Report. From September 1998 to January of 2001, he was a special assistant and senior speechwriter to President Bill Clinton. He wrote over 200 speeches for the president on subjects ranging from education to health care and the budget. We'll discuss how Biden can close the gap between his impressive accomplishments and the perception in the public that most Americans are not satisfied with his leadership, which is largely caused by the press. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Humaira Pamuk, who is a foreign policy reporter for Reuters, who covers the United States State Department and has had postings in London, Cairo, Dubai and Turkey. Welcome to Background Briefing, Humaira Pamuk. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Humaira. And the earthquake in southern Turkey, northern Syria, is affecting you, you personally. Your mother's cousin is stuck under the rubble somewhere in Hatay province, and I believe you've been on the phone for a long time today trying to get a rescue effort there, and at this point, have you been successful? Unfortunately, no, Ian. Um, I I really wouldn't want to be the story here, but um, unfortunately, I did end up having a personal experience in this one. Uh, my mother's dear cousin lives in Hatay, and we haven't been able to reach her since the earthquake struck. Um, and obviously, that's been very unnerving. Um, but I understand from all of the footage that I'm seeing in the Reuters system, on social media, and speaking with friends and various rescue workers on the ground, I understand that the situation that we're in is actually the situation that thousands of other people are in. Um, while there seems to be a humongous 
uh, state-driven, civil society-driven search, rescue, and aid effort is underway. Um, it looks like there are still a lot of buildings that have not seen uh, our search and rescue team. Uh, I'm seeing footage from like people who are walking in streets that are filled with completely collapsed buildings, and they're saying that they're hearing people uh, from inside the, the traps and under the rubble. Um, and in many occasions, uh, we don't see a rescue operation. Now, it is also true that the rescue operations have picked up significantly uh, since yesterday, and they are reaching to like different parts. It is important to note that it is a very, very big area. Ten provinces, it's a very big area. And this was a very shallow earthquake, very close to the surface that has therefore had an impact on uh, such uh, such a large, uh, far-reaching area. And um, it's very overwhelming for, for everyone. So the first 48 hours are critical in terms of getting people out from underneath the rubble. So is the problem, Humara, simply that there's just not enough cranes and earth-moving equipment to lift up these concrete slabs, you know, of these collapsed buildings? I think there seems to be an important organizational problem here, a logistical problem. This is what I can gather from speaking with uh, again, like rescue people and uh, friends who are trying to help. Um, a lot of critics point out to the, to, to the fact that things have become very centralized in Turkey since the 1999 earthquake uh, that had killed 17,000 people. I live that in Istanbul, and I can tell you that that was the longest 40 seconds 45 seconds of my life for sure. So at, at that time, perhaps Turkey's civil society space was more diverse and they had a bigger space, different kinds of groups with different political backgrounds, uh, regardless of their political ideology, were able to join forces and help people on the ground. At the moment, I see this outpouring generosity on social media, a lot of influencers, actors, um, journalists, like a lot of people are mobilized for sure. And they're trying to combine their like civil efforts, uh, liaising with the state's efforts. But there are, there are people who are pointing out to the fact that a lot of things are centralized uh, by the state. And it's unclear whether that centralized effort is organized enough, orchestrated enough, and prepared enough. There has been all of this earthquake tax that has, that has been collected from the citizens all these years. Um, there are a lot of outstanding Turkish scientists who for years have been warning for this kind of a disaster. And those same people are also still warning for a similar disaster for Istanbul, Turkey's most populous and biggest city. And now they're speaking on TVs and saying the government basically ignored their warnings, that they have submitted all of these uh, reports, research, told the government, here are the action plans that you have to do. Here is the regulation that you have to change so that these construction companies would have more stringent rules to abide by so that these buildings would be stronger and more resilient for this kind of thing. And they say that all of their warnings just went completely ignored. And what happened to the money collected from the earthquake tax after the 1999 devastating earthquake? There's concerns about where it went and how it disappeared. I mean, I have not made a robust investigation into this. I have not had a chance to look into that like properly, so I wouldn't want to say it's here or there. But at this point, it's fair to say people are like raising concerns about it. They're raising questions about it. Um, unfortunately, the increasing authoritarian 
way increasing authoritarian nature of the state in Turkey over the past two decades means that the space for accountability has also shrunk. We're talking about um, the central state and central government bypassing various regulations, um, the, you know, the requirements for reporting, the requirements for audit, inspections. We have seen all of these things time and again in various disasters, you know, diminishing, uh, shrinking. And there are like all of these independent institutions, civil society making all of these warnings about the need for stronger checks and balances. But we have seen these institutions being hallowed over the past decade. And in a way, this is the result. I'm a Turkish citizen myself. I have paid uh, those taxes when I was living home. Um, and I actually, it's a good question. I don't know exactly where they are. Well, you're a journalist too, Humaira, and a lot of your colleagues are in jail. Erdogan has jailed an awful lot of journalists, has he not? Yes. The government, the Turkish government, claimed that they they were not doing, they were not engaged in journalistic activity, but um, human rights organizations and a lot of advocates, uh, they have they have their numbers, and Turkey is unfortunately among the um, among the top countries, the biggest jailers of journalists in the world. But you mentioned earlier that people are in the media now talking about particularly seismologists and, and experts on building and construction, that they're saying that the government ignored their warnings and their plans and that there are also questions being raised about what happened to the money from the earthquake tax. I thought Erdogan controlled the media. I mean, uh, is this sort of information getting out to the Turkish public? No, it is getting out to the Turkish public. Um, I think it's important to make a distinction between Turkey and like some other countries, like, I don't know, Russia, China. I don't think these are like on par comparisons. There is a vibrant, um, there is a vibrant social media space in Turkey. Um, despite a lot of the, you know, let's say, uh, regulations um, that raises questions about free speech, uh, freedom of expression. We have um, emerging YouTube broadcasters. They are independent. They don't belong to a, a particular uh, media, like a broadcasting channel. But the mainstream, the traditional media that, people who don't have much access to internet, um, let's say like perhaps in more rural parts of the country, they still look at the traditional TV channels. And it is fair to say that those are mostly overwhelmingly controlled by either state-controlled media, state-controlled companies, or, you know, pro-government, affiliates, pro-government, individuals, businessmen. But this is I mean, there are still a few opposition and mainstream channels, and um, it is it is not very easy to hide these things. They, there is incredible amount of destruction. They are sending their teams to cover the story, and the teams there are basically reporting the truth. They're standing next to uh, the wreck, the rubble you know, the wreckage of a, of a building, and they don't see uh, search and rescue teams. In the next street, perhaps there is search and rescue team. But do you see what I mean? Right. If that is the reality. It's just, I mean, the reality tends to emerge. It's so, there is still social media, there's Twitter. A lot of people are shooting videos, putting things um, on the internet, and that's how uh, fact, reality, the truth basically uh, comes out. And the truth is pretty grim and heartbreaking, isn't it? Because apparently all across this devastated area, there are people trapped under the rubble and they're crying out and people can hear them, but they can't do anything about it. 
Yes, unfortunately, it is extremely grim and it's very heartbreaking because we've been through this more than 20 years ago and it's very like inconceivable and hard to understand for a lot of Turkish citizens why we have to go through this again. I mean, it is important to acknowledge that the magnitude of this earthquake and the one followed after that are like incredibly big and it is very rare that such huge earthquakes, one after the other, would strike a specific region. So, fair to say that we are facing an unprecedented disaster, the biggest perhaps um, in a century that this country, this region is is facing. Um, but, I mean, Turkey, it is a known fact that we are within... Uh, the zone of all of these fault lines. It's not something, so th- this, this shouldn't be a surprise. Um, we have all of our scientists warning for this. Like the geography, where we are on the map is a known fact. And we should, we should have lived according to that, meaning we should have, you know, made all of these preparations. We should have amended all of our regulations and rules Um, according to the fact that our country, certain parts of it, is going to be facing earthquakes throughout our time. But it has now become clear that the government hasn't done that. So the government or the defense minister has deployed 7,500 Turkish soldiers and they're taking in more soldiers from Cyprus and other areas where the military has deployed and, I mean, we know there's a lot of specialized teams that know how to retrieve people from from collapsed buildings. They're heading from all around the world here from Los Angeles. As a matter of fact, a team is being dispatched. Um, we also know that President Zelensky of Ukraine spoke with Erdogan on the phone. He and the Ukrainians are actually sending 87 people. So people are coming in on the pipeline, and I take it they're bringing in equipment as well. So you mentioned earlier that there's a problem with logistics. Is that, again, a governmental problem because of uh, the centralized power and authority of what many people describe as a kind of dictatorship under Erdogan? I think we're going to see, hopefully, the logistics getting a little bit better with all of those teams coming in. We've just written a story about the American team uh, arriving uh, tomorrow in the southern province of Adana. They're landing in Indrilic Air Base. Uh, I believe we have dozens of different uh, countries who have offered help, and the Spanish team, the Greek team, they're on the ground. The Israeli team, they're on the ground. They have their uh, professional, like, very uh, sophisticated teams, and we have seen footage that they've actually pulled people um, from from out of the, out of the, the, the rubble. I think it was unfortunate that the the first 24 to 36 hours uh, was like quite chaotic. Um, there are mixed opinions about this. There are a lot of people who say, as I said before, this is an extremely overwhelming and rare um, natural disaster that any government would have uh, would have been under such pressure and would have gone through this this chaos. Um, and then. There are other people who say that um, it it should have it should have been uh, prepared. Going forward, the hope is that as more teams come in uh, with equipment, dogs. I mean, the U.S. team, for example, were saying they have specialized equipment, drills, saws, because there are some key highways that are destroyed. Uh, for example, Hatay Airport is at the moment unusable. It is very difficult to specifically get to Hatay. There's a lot of traffic. The winter conditions are hampering all of these rescue efforts. It's, it's playing a major role. Uh, we shouldn't underestimate that. Um, but the hope is that all of this hopefully is going to get better in the coming days. However, is that going to be enough time for, for people under the rubble? Is that going to be enough time for people like my mother's cousin, who's already been 
under that rubble for, for 40 hours, are they going to be able to hang on? Um, the briefing with the American team, they said they specifically made the point that our primary, first and foremost, uh, goal at the moment is to be deployed in an area that is prioritized by the Turkish government. They said that they were liaising with the main disaster agency and deploy their teams to work in shifts 24-7 so that they can focus on trying to save as many lives as possible. They were very clear-eyed about the time factor and that they were aware that they only have a certain window to be able to do that. Miracles have happened in the past. We have seen children, um, elderly people being pulled off the rubble hours and hours after the earthquake hit. Um, and hopefully we will see as many miracles as possible. Well, Humara Pamuk, I thank you so much for joining us here today. And fingers crossed and prayers for your mother's cousin. Thank you, Ian, for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Humara Pamuk, who is a foreign policy reporter for Reuters, who covers the United States State Department and has had postings in London, Cairo, Dubai and Turkey. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into why the earthquake in Turkey was so deadly due to the three tectonic plates, the Arabian, Anatolian and African plates that converge in the area where the earthquake broke along a 100 kilometer fault line. أنا الملية تدور وطن يا بعان الملية تدور وطن واسعى العلم حبين يا ياب Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Susan Hoff, who's a seismologist with the U.S. Geological Survey in Pasadena, California, who has written extensively about the science of earthquakes and the way that earthquakes have affected human societies. Her books include Earthshaking Science, What We Know and Don't Know About Earthquakes, Finding Fault in California, An Earthquake Tourist Guide, After the Earthquakes, Elastic Rebound on an Urban Planet, Predicting the Unpredictable, the Tumultuous Science of Earthquake Prediction, and most recently, The Great Quake Debate, The Crusader, The Skeptic, and The Rise of Modern Seismology. Welcome to Background Briefing, Susan Hoff. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Susan, and you're the right person to talk to since your research studies the intraplate earthquakes, and that's apparently what happened with this 7.8 earthquake in uh, southern Turkey, northern Syria, where you have the meeting of the Arabian, Anatolian, and the African plates. And I take it these tectonic plates continually grind against each other, and then they reach a the point where they, what, they kind of slip, and then suddenly you have an earthquake. Is that how it works? Pretty much, and I need to apologize off the bat. I use the word happy, and, you know, this obviously is not a happy situation. Um so um, seismologists are, are mindful of that. But yes, we, we've known for a long time that Turkey is an active earthquake zone. It's, there's actually a tectonic plate that coincides uh, mostly with the extent of, of Turkey. So it has active faults um, around, pretty much around the edges, and we know that it's one of the, the world's very active earthquake zones. And there was the first 7.8 magnitude earthquake happened at 4.17 in the morning. Then the next one was 7.5, and that happened, I think, around 1 p.m. during the day. And that's been described as a doublet earthquake. Explain that, if you will, Susan. Well, I yeah, I'm not sure doublet is, is actually that useful um, a term. We The 7.8 was the main shock, on average, the largest aftershock is about one unit smaller than the main shock, but that's only an average. And if you look at individual earthquakes, sometimes the largest aftershock is, is quite large and close to the size of the main shock. So I think seismologists, doublet is, is kind of a qualitative term. A seismologists would consider the seven and a half to be to be an aftershock. It was just on the large side compared to what we usually see. 
But it was in a different part of Turkey. I mean, it was a fair distance away, wasn't it, the second one? Yes. So aftershocks don't necessarily happen on the same fault that produced a main shock. And an earthquake as big as 7.8, it broke a swath of the fault that was some 200 kilometers or 125 miles long. So the aftershock zone stretches out along that fault break, but also away from it. You know, that that earthquake was big enough that it disrupted the crust um, and shook up other faults, literally. So the aftershock zone is kind of a cloud that can extend some distance from the fault that broke in a main shock. So what is the prediction system then? Is it just a case we're told that the last major earthquake was in 1939 in that area? Uh, there was, of course, some pretty devastating earthquakes north and near Istanbul in 1999. What is it? 17,000 people, I think, died. So what is the science then on the frequency or the infrequency of major earthquakes in these tectonic zones like we have here in Southern California with the San Andreas Fault? Yeah, there very much is. a. You can draw parallels with the San Andreas Fault, but... it. In California and in Turkey, we know quite a lot about the expected long-term average rate of earthquakes. So if you look at a hazard map, which distills everything we know and, and tries to, it shows what the hazard is from, from expected earthquakes, there's a ribbon of high hazard along in northern Turkey, along the North Anatolian Fault, and along this East Anatolian Fault. So it's been known for a long time that these are active faults. And in sort of a cartoon sense, Turkey is a little bit like a watermelon seed that's being squeezed by the motion of plates around it. And like if you tried to squeeze a watermelon seed between your fingers, it would actually move sideways. So there's a fault that's along the northern Turkey is the northern edge of the watermelon seed. And this fault that broke in this earthquake was the southeast edge. So you know, we we understand the the big picture of the plate tectonics. We know that we're going to see large earthquakes on these faults. The one thing we can't do is is predict with any specificity of you know what earthquake is going to happen next. Um, when is it going to happen? There's just no technology that lets us do that. So you have done, at least your colleague, I don't know whether you're involved in this project at the U.S. Geological Survey, where you simulated a magnitude 7-point earthquake in Southern California, and that determined that there would be at least 1,800 deaths and 50,000 injuries and destroy major utilities, etc., you know, power, gas, fuel, you name it. So was that a a study you were involved with, uh, Susan? Um, only peripherally, but I'm well aware of it. And the thing is that earthquakes like the the recent one in Turkey have happened in California. In 1857, there was an earthquake that uh, we estimate was a 7.8 to 7.9, and then the great 1906 earthquake famously is estimated at 7.9. So and those are the one that laid waste to that laid waste to San Francisco. Um, yeah, so some of the damage, a lot of it was due to the firestorms that started. But like like Turkey, the, the 1906 was an extended swath of the San Andreas Fault that broke in that one earthquake. It was longer, we think, more like 400 kilometers, whereas Turkey was more like 200. But it's still, it, it's, it, it's analogous in that they were very large earthquakes that broke an extended part of a strike foot fault um, right through the, the continent where, where you have people living. So in terms, I guess there's no upper limit on how bad an earthquake can be, but the largest earthquake ever apparently was a 9.5 recorded in Chile in 1960, and then I take it that the second largest happened more recently off the coast of Japan in 2011. That was a magnitude of nine. And, of course, we saw the tsunami and the impact on nuclear power plants that that had. That was extraordinary. So when the U.S. Geological Survey did the 7.8, 
scenario for California or for Southern California, they didn't venture past 7.8. Is that how would 7.8 look on the overall scale of things, given the top figure being 9.5? Right. So when you talk about an earthquake being big or bad, there's different ways an earthquake can can be big. The magnitude is is a measure of how much of the fault broke in that earthquake and how much did it move. But it matters a huge amount where the fault is relative to where people are. And the biggest earthquakes we get on the planet are at subduction zones where typically oceanic crust or seafloor is sinking. And so that fault is actually, it starts near the surface, but then it goes deep into the earth. So if you're on the surface, you're some distance away from it. And the farther away you are from the actual fault break, the better it is in general in terms of the shaking severity. So um, so we don't expect to see these monster magnitude 9 earthquakes in in California because the faults just aren't big enough to produce them. The only place you have a big enough fault to, to get a magnitude 9 is is a subduction zone or the collision zone between the Indian subcontinent and Eurasia. So people have done a lot of work on this. If you broke the San Andreas Fault over the, the biggest earthquake we think would fit, you end up with something close to magnitude 8. So those are when we talk about the big one in California, we're usually in a, it's somewhere close to magnitude 8. So what would then uh, be the upper limit in Turkey? Is that a similar situation to California? It's generally similar, and it's a little bit hard to, to estimate what's the, if you broke up, if you broke a series of faults altogether, how big could the earthquake be? That number in California is just a little above magnitude aid. For Turkey, I'm not sure it's it's in that ballpark. But one important thing for hazard is that it's not just the magnitude that matters. Again, it's how far you are from the fault. So what makes these faults so dangerous is that they're running right through land, right through towns. You know, people are are living quite close to where the the energy is being released, and that's what makes them um, so dangerous. Well, in the case of northern Syria, it's absolutely tragic because there were four million people living in that area of northern Syria that are already on humanitarian assistance because of the civil war, which is ongoing in that area. So you have humanitarian disaster upon humanitarian disaster. Yeah, no, there are some some tragic situations. I did a lot of work in Haiti after their big earthquake in 2010, and that's another country that just has been reeling with with one um, one situation after after another. And I do. It's it's clear that the death toll from this is going to continue to rise as as the recovery effort forward. Well, apparently the the faults in in Turkey are fairly. Long. There's the North Anatolian Fault is 930 miles long, and the East Anatolian Fault is 300 miles long. So mm-hmm. the country is should be used to it, and I, one wonders why there's not better building standards. Yeah, it's a little bit hard to speculate as an outside expert. They have been moved. They're aware of earthquake hazard. Um, they have been strengthening building codes and construction standards. And the footage I've seen, often there'll, there'll be a catastrophic collapse, but there may be buildings around it that seem to be okay. So they they do have, you know, they're aware of the need and importance for building codes and proper engineering. Um and exactly where the where the vulnerabilities lie, I, I just don't want to comment on that. One problem, though, is that as building codes continue to improve over time, you have the existing building problem. That it's buildings that are perfectly serviceable that aren't built to modern code, it's very expensive typically to retrofit them. And that's a problem that, that exists everywhere, including California. What do you do with the, the structures that you know are, are vulnerable? So and I, I sometimes say that risk reduction is a process, and it 
it takes time. It takes time in in um, California and Japan to to get to where we are now, and it, it may take more time in other areas. Well, I mentioned earlier the U.S. Geological Survey simulation of a 7.8 earthquake in Southern California that caused 1,800 deaths and 50,000 injuries. And then they did another simulation in Northern California along the Hayward Fault uh, with a magnitude 7 that came up with 800 deaths. And then a magnitude 7.5 quake in on the Puente Hills Fault, which runs underneath a lot of populated area of L.A. and Orange Counties, that would kill 3,000 to 18,000 people, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. So that's still way below what's happening in Turkey, right? So what would explain the difference between the possible casualties in Southern California as opposed to what we're witnessing now in Turkey? Yeah, so first, uh, you alluded to this earlier, the predicting what the impact of a, of a given earthquake is it's not a precise science and because in part time of day matters you you mentioned the early hour of the 7.8 if people are living in vulnerable apartment buildings an earthquake could kill a lot more people if it happens when people are asleep compared to you know when they might be out more during the day so all of those predictions are they're not precise numbers um, in general, California is better prepared for earthquakes. Um, we're coming up on the 90th anniversary of the Long Beach earthquake in 1933. And that earthquake, which happened fairly early in the history of Los Angeles, really hammered home the severity of earthquake hazard. And California started to enact building codes with earthquake provisions going back 90 years now. And those building codes have been strengthened over time as earthquakes um, reveal vulnerabilities. But you know the, the process of risk reduction is at least 90 years down the road in California, and, and you see that. There's an awful lot of work that's going on behind the scenes that people may not know about to improve the resilience of buildings and infrastructure. Just one example after the Northridge earthquake in 94 caused a couple of spectacular bridge and overpass collapses. Caltrans took on a major retrofitting program and jacketed the columns under bridges and overpasses throughout the state. So probably people didn't even realize that that was going on, but the next time we have a big earthquake, that's going to make a, a huge difference. It's It's the dog that didn't by when an earthquake happens, you you don't see the kind of damage that you do in other places, and there's there's reasons for that. There's an awful lot of work that's happened. Well, Susan Hoppe, thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Susan Hoff, who's a seismologist with the U.S. Geological Survey in Pasadena, California, who has written extensively about the science of earthquakes and the way that earthquakes have affected human societies. Her books include Earthshaking Science, What We Know and Don't Know About Earthquakes, Finding Fault in California, and Earthquake Tourist Guide, After the Earthquakes, Elastic Rebound on an Urban Planet, Predicting the Unpredictable, the Tumultuous Science of Earthquake Prediction, and most recently, The Great Quake Debate, The Crusader, The Skeptic, and The Rise of Modern Seismology. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back just ahead of tonight's State of the Union address, looking into how Biden can close the gap between his impressive accomplishments and the perception in the public that most Americans are not satisfied with his leadership.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Paul Glastrus, the editor-in-chief of The Washington Monthly, who spent 10 years as a correspondent and editor at U.S. News and World Report. From September 1998 to January 2001, he was a special assistant and senior speechwriter to President Bill Clinton. He wrote over 200 speeches for the president on subjects ranging from education to health care to the budget. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Glastrus. Great to be here, Ian. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Paul. And since you've had a hand in writing State of the Union speeches for presidents, what do you know about Biden's speechwriting team? And how much does Biden weigh in? Um, you know, my understanding is that he, he weighs in very heavily, especially at the end. What typically happens is a president will sit down with his senior advisors, the chief speechwriter, um, a few others, and uh, you know, with a tape recorder or, or whatever, the folks will listen to what his he wants the big themes to be, some of the major points. Then the whole White House uh, policy staff goes to work. Um, uh, interacting with cabinet secretaries, secretaries, with members of Congress, with major interest groups and party bigwigs, and listens to their ideas. Everybody's pitching uh, ideas, budgets, you know, looking for their budget increases, trying to get um, uh, their ideas into the speech. All that gets filtered through the, the policy staffs and ultimately uh, the speechwriters crank out a draft uh, of the speech. And then for several weeks, really, uh, uh, on and off again, the, the president will, will look at it, mark it up, and it'll go through draft after draft. Um, but these last few days, the president was up at Camp David. He had, um, he had uh, his senior people around him. He also had John Meacham, a Washington Monthly alumnus and Pulitzer Prize winning historian who helps out on these things. Uh, often a president will have outside people come in. And, um, you know, for Bill Clinton, he would sit there in front of a podium on the, in the theater of the East Wing of the White House a couple hours a day over three days and just read through the speech and literally stop every other sentence and, and want to tweak the sentence. And we would rewrite the speech um, as he wanted. And by the, en- by the end, he-, he really made the speech his own. And I think Biden is the same. But Clinton was a natural. He was very telegenic and was able to speak very well and extemporaneously. And uh, Obama, of course, was really gifted in that way. But Biden is just not a naturally good speaker. I'm not being critical. It's just a fact. There's no question that, you know, he doesn't have the talent that either Clinton or Obama had. And let's be clear, very few do. Right. Those were world class uh, rhetoricians and presenters. Um, Joe Biden has um, uh, uh, has his strengths as a speaker. Um, He is genuine. He's passionate. um, He speaks plainly uh, in the vernacular. um, But, you know, uh, he he's he's not at his best in that in that forum. So the thing where he really is not at his best, and, I, and I'm not blaming Biden, because I, I mean, it's true that he's, he hasn't been able to sell his programs and sell his successes, and they've been pretty extraordinary for a, for a guy that's only been in for two years. He's gotten more legislation done than presidents have been in for four or sometimes eight years. And he's had an incredibly thin majority, but he's nevertheless been able to push through some important stuff. He doesn't take credit for it or doesn't get credit for it. And look at just what happened where you got these amazing job numbers and the inflation is down. And yet we learn that the American people think the economy is terrible and things aren't going well. And I have to blame the press. You know, is it the fact that our economists and economic pundits basically talk about Wall Street, and Wall Street is not the real economy. I mean, in the real economy, things are going well. So what explains that gap, Paul, between Biden's successes and 
sort of the, the gloomy feeling that the American people have based upon what? Well, you know, don't get me started on the press. You're right about that. But go back to the 1990s. Um, the economy started to really expand in 1993. Um, the, the murder rate started to go down. The uh, income started to go up. Teen pregnancies started to go down. Um, the budget deficit started to go down. It took several years, four or five years, of unbelievable good news before the bulk of the American public said, you know, you, you know, the country's going in the right direction, right? People don't believe it. They, they, they know that maybe things are good for them right now, but they remember they weren't so good a year ago. They're not sure they're going to be good next year. And they sure as heck don't have any faith that it's good for the country as a whole. And they, they don't necessarily trust statistics, and so it's going to, you know, it's, this is, this is how the public is. Um, and, um, you, I'd rather be where Joe Biden is than where the Republicans are right now. Every president wants to be where Joe Biden is, where you've got a, a, a growing, booming economy, record low unemployment. We've had, um, and the press has not reported this for reasons we can discuss, um, we've had, you know, inflation under control for six months. And only now are people, uh, are the papers saying that the you know, inflation's down? You, you know, anybody who's gone to a gas, gas their car up knows that inflation's been down. But the press has, you know, failed to really report it. And people don't trust it. So um, he's got an, he, he, he has to educate them, is to stand by the good news. Um, but boy, you'd rather have the numbers going the right way than the wrong way. And it's not just on the economy. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the pandemic is way more under control. Um, the America's adversaries, Russia and China, are weaker than they were two years ago. America is stronger than it was two years ago, economically, militarily, diplomatically. Our allies are sticking with us, and we're adding allies. They're losing allies. I mean, it's a heck of a good uh, place to be when you have to come up with the line, you know, uh, what is the state of America? The state of America is blank. Uh, you'd rather be where Joe Biden is. Well, you mentioned China. I imagine the balloon is going to come up right. I mean, even though it's been <laughs> ballooned into a big deal, a much bigger deal than it is, I guess, but it, the Republicans made a big deal about it, and particularly people like Mike Pompeo, and they look, end up looking like idiots, frankly. Here's the great thing about the State of the Union. You don't have to talk about what everybody wants you to talk about. You've got an hour plus where you have the podium, you control the, the, the words, and if he doesn't want to talk about the friggin' balloon, he doesn't have to talk about the balloon. Um, he's got bigger issues that the balloon connects with, which is, you know, China's um, uh, growing or, you know, had been growing military and economic power and so forth. But if, he, you know, I have no idea if he's going to mention the balloon. I'm, I'm not sure if I were advising him, I'd, I'd advise it. Um, uh, literally, that was yesterday's news, right? T tomorrow, it'll be two days old. Nobody will remember it. And so, so he, a State of the Union is not supposed to be a news conference where you're asking questions about the about the you know the news of the day. It's about laying out a vision for the future, and you know that's what he needs to do. Well, what we know about the speech coming up in about an hour is that he's definitely going to talk about a price cap, extend a, a new thirty-five dollar price cap on insulin for Medicare beneficiaries, make premium savings in the Affordable Care Act permanent. He's going to want to put a minimum tax on billionaires, which I think is, should be important. And if you pointed out how billionaires, have, their wealth has increased exponentially over the last few years, as has the profit of oil companies, I'm sure he might bring that up. And he's also talking about quadrupling a tax on corporate stock buybacks, which, again, should be very popular. How do you think that's going to play? 
Well, you know, it depends on with, with whom. Um, well, my I... guess is that that that, that you know the, the bulk of the American people will will support it. The bulk of the Republican members of Congress will be against it, um, uh, whether they think it's a bad idea or not. They're going to be against it. Um, will it happen? Will it be? Will it become legislation? Unlikely, I suppose. Right. Uh, but he's putting ideas out there. Those particular ideas, by the way, um, will lower the lower the deficit. And, um, uh, you know, Republicans are going to say we want spending cuts. Well, he's saying let's have tax increases and let's you know, you want to meet in the middle. We'll meet in the middle. Remember. In, in 1998, 1999 and 2000, at, where Bill Clinton was in a very similar position with a blooming economy, but. Congress in the hands of the opposite party, and they were gunning to gut the, the, the budget. And at that point, we had budget surpluses and we were coming into them. And Clinton said uh, two, four famous words, save Social Security first. And his idea was, let's save the surplus, put it in a separate fund to shore up the future of Social Security. Not only did he thereby take charge of what the Republicans thought was going to be their issue, which is entitlement, quote unquote, reform, but he did it in a way that blunted their efforts to have a tax cut. He said, let's not cut the taxes. Let's put the money in to shore up Social Security. So so what it sounds to me like is that uh, he the, the Biden White House is meeting the Republican demands for spending cuts. With, uh, you know, you, I'll raise you tax increases and my tax increases will be more popular than your spending cuts. Right. But at this moment, of course, he is going to talk about preserving uh, Social Security and Medicare, but he's preserving Social Security and Medicare uh, in the face of a lunatic assault on the economy, both the American economy and the global economy, where you essentially have what former Speaker Boehner described as legislative terrorists threatening to tank the entire economy in order to get budget cuts. And we're talking about the debt ceiling. Now, to my mind, you could divide America into two groups. There's the sane and the insane. So how do you isolate the insane and make the Republicans sitting there face the fact that they're behaving as like legislative terrorists? We have a story in the current Washington Monthly website by our political editor, Bill Shear saying that it looks to him that as if uh, Kevin McCarthy really, really doesn't want to play uh, hostage with the debt ceiling. His, his, some of his members do, but he understands that this isn't a weapon to be wielded. It's a grenade that's in the Republicans' hand, and he wants to put the pin back in. And I think some of the statements he's made in the last 24 hours lend credence to that. Um, if that's the case and he can he can negotiate something wherein they they come up with some there are going to be some spending cuts or at least some um, compromises on the rate of federal spending that would otherwise be the case. Republicans have one house of the Congress. That's just going to happen. Um, what this White House wants to do is not have it be connected to the to the uh, to the uh, to the debt issue. And um, and, uh, you know, let's hope that happens. But look, if the Republicans want to play with the grenade, um, that would be terrible for the country, terrible for the markets, but good politics for Joe Biden. So because because they're going to be seen as extremists you know, threatening an economy that is that is healing. And um, uh, that is just not going to win them votes outside of their base. And they just lost. You know, they thought they were going to take the Senate. They 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 lost the Senate seat and barely got the House back on what should have been a banner year. Uh, I'm talking about the Republicans because they sounded too crazy. So, um, uh, you know, we will see how they want to play it. Well, just in the last uh, couple of minutes, Paul Glasseris, I covered the two neo-Nazis that were arrested 
for tr- wanting to blow up five uh, electric substations and cast uh, the city of Baltimore into the dark and hopefully, if through the chaos, create a race war. And it's clear that we have a problem with domestic terrorism, particularly when they attack infrastructure. Now, the reason this attack didn't happen was because the FBI arrested these people and they were following them and monitoring them and surveilling them and they had an informant. So the FBI is actually preventing really bad things happening to the American people. And yet the Republicans in the House, Jim Jordan and others, want to cut funding for the FBI. So do you think Biden could bring that up? Because to my mind, that is even almost as insane as crashing the global economy. I think it's a great point. And, you know, you have this situation where uh, the Russians uh, were able to to uh, uh, a Russian oligarch was able to bribe uh, one of these uh, Trump supporting FBI agents and uh, a senior person in in in, uh, in the New York office of the FBI. So there's 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 some squirrely things going on. But you're right. We our terrorism problem is and has been for many years a a right wing domestic terrorism problem. And, you know, it used to be that the people on the left um, worried about FBI surveillance of citizens. Now they're cheering it. And it's the right wing who thinks they're jackbooted thugs because they're 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 they're, you know, arresting right wingers. So, you know, what goes around comes around. But, yeah, I, I think Joe Biden would do himself a favor by standing up for law enforcement, uh, but under the rule of law, be it police or the FBI or anything else. So just in closing then, Paul, we know that Biden is going to have the Ukrainian ambassador there. He's going to have Bono, Paul Pelosi. He's also going to have a young immigrant seeking um, legal status, a parent of a fentanyl overdose victim, a couple who pushed for legal, to legalize same-sex marriage, a Holocaust survivor, an iron worker, and a man who disarmed uh, the shooter out here in Monterey Park, California, and also a woman who encountered the Texas abortion law and couldn't get help with a troubled pregnancy, and of course the parents of Tyree Nichols as well. So I know that happens at every uh, State of the Union, but... This is dealing with what's really happening in America, right? This is, that's a cross-section of, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly. Yeah, that is that is quite a lineup, isn't it? And uh, we'll see how many of those get referenced in the speech and how many are just, uh, you know, uh, fodder for press stories. But that's that's a great lineup. Well, I thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me. And again, I mean, speaking with Paul Glastris, who is the editor-in-chief of the Washington Monthly. He spent 10 years as correspondent and editor of U.S. News and World Report. And from September 1998 to January 2001, he was special assistant and senior speechwriter to President Bill Clinton. He wrote over 200 speeches for the president on subjects ranging from education to health care to the budget. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared